Hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Dr. Melvin Butler, and this is African-American Song Traditions. If there's one thing we can say about African-American music making in the mid-20th century, it's that there's an enormous range of musical styles and categories, and that musicians influenced one another profoundly. They were formed in ways that appealed to specific audiences and saw their music as a means of individual and collective expression. In the 1950s, black recording artists contributed mightily to the rhythm and blues genre that became the foundation of rock and roll and helped shape the musical genre known as soul. The church played a pivotal role. As the movement for civil rights unfolded, music making was a critical resource. And of course, there are several important figures who emerged in the 1950s and 60s and spoke truth to power in ways that were both subtle and overt. Bernice Johnson Regan is a highly influential singer, historian, educator, and activist. She was an early member of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, also known by the acronym SNCC, which was a civil rights group founded in April of 1960, just a few months after the sit-ins that took place in North Carolina in protest to the white-only policies that prohibited blacks from being seated at lunch counters. SNCC's members were deeply committed to amplifying the voices and concerns of black youth, especially college students. The committee organized peaceful protests, including voter registration drives, to educate blacks about their rights under the law, and especially to increase black voter turnout in the South. Bernice Johnson Regan was initially involved with the civil rights movement through her local chapter of the NAACP in Albany, Georgia, where she was a college student. And by November of 1961, an Albany movement of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee had been founded and the members were holding mass meetings to strategize about ways to confront racial injustice. Group singing played a critically important role in these meetings and Bernice Johnson Regan emerged as a talented song leader. One of the first freedom songs that she led is called Freedom in the Air. Originally, it was Trouble in the Air, but Johnson Regan realized as she was singing that the word trouble didn't quite capture the spirit of the moment. So she changed the word trouble to freedom. And this allowed the song to take on a prophetic tone that was a source of collective encouragement in the face of racial hostility. Over my head, I see freedom in the air. Over my head, oh Lord, I see freedom in the In 1962, Bernice Johnson Regan became one of the founding members of the Freedom Singers. This was originally a vocal quartet that SNCC put together to articulate the aspirations of the movement for racial justice and to raise money for their organization. They were, in many ways, the public face of SNCC. The Freedom Singers went on tour from December 1962 to August 1963, performing in churches, houses, on college campuses, and at various marches, demonstrations, and protests. 
Bernice Johnson Regan once described the Freedom Singers as a singing newspaper. They are a fantastic example of how music, particularly singing, can be a vehicle for spreading a powerful message. In a 2007 article, Leslie Page Rose argues that, quote, music was effective as a communicative device because active participation and unique sounds were part of the musical heritage of Black Americans of African descent. Participation, regardless of skill level, was encouraged in the performance practice of the music, transforming the concert gore into an immediate participant, unquote. The Freedom Singers thus call to mind what Thomas Torino refers to as participatory performance. Although their concerts may begin as presentational, in the sense that there is certainly a clear distinction between the performers and the audience, the Freedom Singers really sought to engage the audience, to have them join in with the singing, and thereby to transform every space of music making into one of communal action in which singing together becomes a radical way of being together in solidarity with a common cause and a shared purpose. In an October 2003 interview, Bernice Johnson Regan offered some insight into her experiences with the Freedom Singers during that extremely tumultuous period in U.S. history. Thanks to modern technology, I have the opportunity to put Dr. Regan's remarks in our present-day context. And it's now my pleasure to have her with us, so to speak, as my very special guest. But first, let's listen to some more of Bernice Johnson Regan's music. This is from a collection of songs originally released in 1975 by Peridon Records. It features Bernice Johnson Regan singing in harmony with herself using multiple tracks. It's a powerful recording, and thankfully it was reissued in 1997 by Smithsonian Folkways Records. We'll take a listen and then invite Dr. Regan to join us in the studio. This is called Give Your Hands to the Struggle. If you see me stumble Give your hands to struggle. Give your 
Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Regan. You know, one of the things that fascinates me, and probably many of our listeners, about the work you were doing in the 1960s, particularly with the Freedom Singers, is that you sometimes brought black and white musicians together on stage, forming a kind of interracial coalition. Could you speak a little bit about why you took that approach, especially in the South? What was the point of adopting such a risky strategy, and what were some of the challenges presented at the time? Our point was that white and black Southern culture related and and crossed each other. And we were coming out of the civil rights movement mm -hmm. and that we could put white musicians and black musicians on stages in the South. It was really, really scary mm -hmm. getting to the hall because you had to travel through towns and we had to deal with that sometimes. But we could get them on the stage and there was a statement we could make about the culture mm -hmm. and the sharing in the culture that might be helpful uh, as the South tried to contend yeah. with uh, where we were going with the civil rights movement issues. Yeah, I can see why you say that was scary. It had to have taken every ounce of your courage given the racial strife that existed in the United States, let alone in much of the South during that time. What was the source of that courage? I mean, were you always so unflappable? How difficult was it for you to stand up to that kind of opposition and fight for your rights? Um, I, I didn't know how to fight all my life. Um, I had to teach myself. Uh, the biggest, biggest thing I had to overcome was this uh, voice inside that said, if you do this, you'll kill yourself. You'll get killed. Hmm. It was just so loud. And stepping across that inner voice was really uh, traumatic for me. Hmm. I discovered if you don't cross that line, you never meet yourself. It's interesting that you speak of crossing the line. I mean, I'm thinking of crossing police lines and daring to assert one's humanity, even though circumstances are intimidating and were, in fact, extremely dangerous at times. You know, and also I keep thinking about the generations of black and white Americans who were born into a system, into a way of thinking, a way of life that must have been extraordinarily tough to rid oneself of. It's easy sometimes for us nowadays to look back historically and chastise people for not having the wherewithal to think outside the racially oppressive boxes they were in. But when I consider how all of us, even today, of course, are socialized, often in ways we don't even fully realize, into harmful patterns of thinking and acting, I'm kind of in awe at how morally courageous young people had to be in the 1950s and 60s to sit and stand in defiance of racism. But you were saying that if you don't cross the lines, you'll never meet yourself. Could you say a bit more about what that means, if you would, and how one goes about crossing the lines you mentioned? You never become who you can be unless you can get past your socialization uh, where, where that older generation has told you what they have learned about survival. You actually have to break ranks with it mm -hmm. or you will never meet yourself. It is like stepping outside of a safety zone. It is very hard to do. But if you ever do it, you always know how to risk your life. Wow. Well, I'm certainly grateful to be reminded of the tremendous sacrifices of people like you, John Lewis, Fannie Lou Hamer, Ella Baker, Martin Luther King Jr., and so many others who actually did risk and sometimes lose their lives for the cause of freedom. It's too easy sometimes to take our freedoms and civil rights for granted. Uh, Dr. Regan, what do you say then to today's young people who obviously still face some challenges but might feel 
that the time for protest has passed or that the battle for civil rights has already been won. How does one resist the temptation to rest on one's laurels, so to speak? In our culture, anything you do disappears the minute you stop doing it. Yeah. And freedom is like that. People think you are born into freedom. The only freedom you have is the freedom you're exercising. Mm. And sitting down thinking it's going to be there when you need it yeah. is it, going to give you a big surprise. Mm -hmm. Yeah, what you just said about the need to exercise one's freedom is helpful because I think it calls much needed attention to the fact that sitting still is not a viable option, that it takes effort or the exercise of our faith, the exercise of our freedom, not just to fight injustice, but even just to maintain the hard fought freedoms we enjoy today. It reminds me of a spiritual we used to sing in church a few years back called, I shall not be moved. In a church context, it has to do with staying faithful to God no matter what. But of course, it can also be applied to the idea of being faithful to the cause of freedom and remaining steadfast and unmovable in the face of racist and institutionalized oppression. And Dr. Regan, I know you sang this spiritual with the freedom singers as we shall not be moved. As a matter of fact, let's listen to this. For the sake of comparison, listen first to the 1929 recording of I Shall Not Be Moved by Charlie Patton, father of the Delta Blues. And then we'll hear a live recording of the Freedom Singers performance at the March on Washington, April 28, 1963.
Juxtaposing two versions of the song, recorded some 34 years apart, illustrates how music can take on dramatically different meanings depending on the social, historical, and cultural context. This is all the more intriguing when we recall that Charlie Patton is known primarily as a blues performer, and this is a recording most often tied to a religious context. Perhaps both Charlie Patton and the Freedom Singers add a layer of significance to the song. Whether they're singing I or we, the performers are expressing a resoluteness in the face of trouble, along with an understanding that the forces of evil come from many sides. Just as music was a vital source of empowerment for the Freedom Singers, music also helped to sustain the courage of a group of activists known as the Freedom Riders. Now, whereas the Freedom Singers are a musical ensemble whose voices provided a soundtrack for the civil rights movement, the Freedom Riders are primarily activists. But both groups used so-called freedom songs as an expression of power and protest. In other words, the term freedom song can apply to a piece of music performed by the professional ensemble called the Freedom Singers, as well as to the activists known as the Freedom Riders. The latter group came about through the work of a Chicago-based organization that had actually been around since the early 1940s. This organization was the Congress of Racial Equality, or CORE. And CORE's main objective was to protest segregation on interstate highways. So they assembled an interracial group of men and women who volunteered to ride together on buses from Washington, D.C. all the way through the Deep South. Now, this is May 1961. It's just an incredible act of bravery and commitment, and these Freedom Riders had to know they were risking their lives and making this kind of trip. The beginning of their road trip was scary enough, but by the time they got to South Carolina, and especially states deeper in the South, like Alabama and Mississippi, they had to deal not only with racist insults and incarceration, but with outright physical violence and racial terrorism. They were spat on and shoved and beaten by violent mobs. On at least a couple of occasions, they were almost burned alive, once in Anniston, Alabama, where the bus they were on was firebombed, and they barely escaped with their lives. And then again in Montgomery, when a racist mob threatened to set the church they were in on fire. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. actually had to persuade the Attorney General, Robert F. Kennedy, to dispatch federal marshals to rescue them. Still, they persisted. When they arrived in Jackson, Mississippi, the Freedom Riders were thrown into the state penitentiary, but neither the viciousness of prison guards nor the apathy of everyday Americans could break their spirits. Even the terroristic threats of the Ku Klux Klan failed to stop them from singing. Through dangers seen and unseen, the Freedom Riders used music as a way of mobilizing African Americans and non-black allies to engage in non-violent civil protest. A 2011 documentary on the Freedom Riders examines how this diverse group of activists used music to further their cause. The film provides eyewitness testimony from several African-American freedom writers, including Ernest Patton, John Lewis, Hank Thomas, and Bernard Lafayette. And there's also testimony from white freedom writers like Joan Mulholland and an exchange student at Fisk University named Jim Zwerg. These activists talk about the vital function of singing during their bus rides throughout the South. Here's a short excerpt from the film. Singing was a way of releasing tension. So we did a lot of singing. A lot of the songs came from old spirituals. They just changed the words to fit whatever was going on at that time. As we got on the bus, I had an idea for a new stanza, Pride Enterprise. 
Riding on this big greyhound, carrying love from town to town. Keep your eyes on the prize. Hold on. And everybody started singing along with me, and that's what we sang as we got on the bus. There were different songs that we were singing to fit the occasion. Uh, for example, one of the songs we would sing would go like, uh, Ain't gonna let nobody turn me around, turn me around, turn me around. Ain't gonna let nobody turn me around. I'm gonna keep on a-walking, keep on a-talking, walking up the King's Highway. Ain't gonna let nobody do it. Turn me around, turn me around, turn me around. Ain't gonna let nobody do it. You're under arrest for refusing to pay my order. You get to the prison, oh God, get out with this rifle drawn. And he says something like, sing your goddamn freedom songs now. Sing your goddamn freedom songs now. I'm taking the Greyhound bus to Jackson this time. I'm riding the front seat and I'll do it every time. Hallelujah, I'm a traveling. Hallelujah, ain't it fine? Hallelujah, I'm a traveling down freedom's main line. Because I wouldn't stop singing, I got put in solitary confinement three different times. We had a small group in our jail cell, and we had a quartet, and I was part of the quartet, and we would sing to the ladies late at night when things were quiet. I know, I know we'll meet again, I know, I know we'll meet again, I know. I know we'll meet again someday. Ooh. The reason for that singing was to let them know that we were okay. And then they would sing back to us and they would let us know that they were okay. You could hear each other back and forth. You, you felt a little bit in touch. But if they wanted to stop our singing or control our behavior, they would take the mattresses. And we'd say, you can take our mattress, oh yes. You can take our mattress, oh yes. We'd start piling up the mattress at the door so they wouldn't have any problem. So they, you know, we were with the program. We were going to still sing. And we continued to sing. put us in harmony with each other, gave us support for each other, and we relish the opportunity. Even if you didn't have a great voice, it didn't matter, you could hum, and so everybody could sing. Singing, the music became a powerful, nonviolent instrument. I in and I often say, without I music, without the singing, we would have lost a sense of solidarity. It gave us hope. 
in a time of hopelessness. I'm a traveling. Hallelujah, ain't it fine? Hallelujah, I'm a traveling down freedom's main line. I think the point John Lewis makes at the end of that clip is worth repeating. He states, singing the music became a powerful nonviolent instrument. And we could pair that quote with Bernice Johnson Regan's observation that sound is a way to extend the territory you can affect. It seems there's something about the invisibility of sound, the fluidity of it, that makes it unstoppable. How do you contain sound? And when you have a group of protesters singing together while marching or even just standing in place, the sheer volume of the music can discourage or repel those who try to come against it. This is one of the main reasons music is often a weapon of the weak and a tool for socially marginalized people all around the world to speak their truth. I should mention that Bernice Johnson Regan continued to sing protest songs and educate audiences about the power of black music throughout her career. In 1973, she founded an all-women's vocal ensemble called Sweet Honey in the Rock. The group has a vast repertory of recordings and songs, one of the most powerful of which is titled Ella's Song, which is a tribute to Ella Baker, whom I consider one of the undersung heroes of the civil rights movement. In the 1960s, it was Ella Baker who organized the meeting that gave rise to the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. Bernice Johnson Regan's vocal arrangement is particularly noteworthy for the changing textures she employs. You'll notice, for example, that the texture is sometimes polyphonic, with different melodies happening simultaneously, while at other times the vocal harmony resolves into a more straightforward homophony, with one melody supported by other vocal parts that play a supporting role. This is Sweet Honey in the Rock with their 1988 recording of Ella's Song. We who believe in freedom cannot rest until it comes. We who believe in freedom cannot Until the killing of black men, black mother's sons, is as important as the killing of white men, white mother's sons. We who believe in freedom cannot Touches me most is that I had a chance to work with people, passing on to others that which was passed on to me. Comfort. 
Bernice Johnson Regan led Sweet Honey in the Rock for 30 years before retiring back in 2004. If you happen to have seen the made-for-television movie Freedom Song, then you definitely heard Sweet Honey in the Rock on the soundtrack. The movie was released in the year 2000, so I'm grateful it was before Bernice Johnson Regan's retirement from the group, just a few short years after this recording of Ain't Gonna Let Nobody Turn Me Around. Yeah. 
This is precisely the kind of freedom song you would have heard during the civil rights marches in the 1960s. They were an indispensable resource for those brave men and women. Martin Luther King recognized as much when he stated that the freedom songs are playing a vital role in our struggle. These songs give the people new courage and a sense of unity. I think they keep alive a faith, particularly in our most trying hours. Ethnomusicologist Thomas Torino echoes this sentiment when he explains that mass singing was one of the primary forces that helped unite people to action and bolster courage in the face of white oppression and violence. So this brings us to the conclusion of this episode. There are many other artists who found creative ways to affirm their racial and cultural identities through music, and it's worth discussing some of these influential performers, such as Nina Simone, Aretha Franklin, the Staple Singers, James Brown, and many more. So that's part of what lies ahead. Thank you for listening, and I wish you all the best. I'm Dr. Melvin Butler. I look forward to continuing this journey with you as we explore African-American song traditions. So until next time, stay safe and sound wherever you are and be well.